Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. The Supreme Court yesterday ruled in favor of the University of Texas rejecting a challenge against the school's affirmative action program. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is off today and Barbara Brozier is joining me as co-host. Welcome, Barbara. Today, we're talking to local experts about the Texas case. Our guests are Steve Sanders. He's an associate professor of law at the Maurer School of Law. Kevin Brown, a professor of law at the Maurer School of Law. David Johnson. He's the vice provost for enrollment management at Indiana University. And David Ortlicker is joining, joining us by phone. He's a professor of law at the Robert H. McKenney School of Law. We invite you to join the conversation. You can ask questions by joining our live chat, following us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or by calling in to the program at 812-855-0811. We're really excited because we have a lot of brain power. We were joking in this room. So you can call in with your questions, and we'll just get the conversation started here. Um, Steve is going to go through and just describe sort of the nuts and bolts of the Fisher versus University of Texas case. Sure, sir. It's a little bit of background is important. In 2003, um, the Supreme Court, in a pair of decisions, ruled that that public universities may engage in a limited form of affirmative action. The backdrop here is that the Equal Protection Clause prohibits discrimination on the basis of race in either direction, but the court said that universities have a compelling educational interest in assuring a diverse student body. And so in 2003, the court basically said as long as they don't use mechanical systems, quotas, uh, set numbers of points, as long as they review every applicant holistically, Um, Race is one factor among many that can be taken into account in admissions decisions. Um, Fast forward a few years uh, to the first version of this case that was decided yesterday. Um, Abigail Fisher is the plaintiff. I think it's important to be candid. This is cause litigation. This is a case that was filed on behalf of opponents of affirmative action who were um, seeking to get the court essentially to reverse its previous decisions and to say that affirmative action is not appropriate in higher education. Uh, in uh, uh, Three years ago, in 2013, the court issued its first ruling in this case. It essentially was inconclusive. It said that the lower courts had not done the proper analysis and it sent it back. Okay, then the case was back to the court for its return trip this term. Um, The decision yesterday for most universities, including IU, didn't change anything. It essentially said the status quo remains. We have not changed our mind from those 2003 decisions, Grutter versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger. Limited uh, consideration of race in the context of a holistic review of every candidate continues to be constitutionally permissible. Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, um, really narrowed his analysis to the specific circumstances of this one university, the University of Texas, which uses a unique system where most students are admitted because they're at the top of their high school classes. That has the effect of bringing in racial and ethnic minority students because many schools remain segregated racially and ethnically. But the University of Texas also uses this limited form of additional consideration of race. And the court basically said yesterday that's appropriate. It it may continue to do so without violating the Constitution. It has given us persuasive and important justifications why some consideration of race and admissions decisions remains important to a university's educational mission. Yeah, I think one way to, you know, Steve talked about this holistic review. So one way to think about it is if universities can take into account a wide range of characteristics of their applicants, their economic of barriers they faced, or musical talents, or athletic skills, and and then look at not just grades and SATs. We want to get a, a, you know, really look at the whole person. It would be odd to exclude race as we can look at everything but race. Now, that would be an odd position to take, and the court is saying as long as you're looking broadly at, 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 at everything people the students can bring to the table, race is, is relevant because, uh, and it's not only just like a lot of other things, it's also very, there's a compelling interest, as, as, the, as the courts put it, in terms of making sure we have a diverse student body and that we build bridges and, and break down stereotypes that, that unfortunately exist about uh, with regard to people's race or ethnic heritage. 
But let me let me add one thing in here too, and that is if you go back and look at the University of Texas's uh, admissions profile before they started to use race again after the Grutter opinion in 2003, they had actually gotten to the point where 4.5 percent of their students were African American, and 16.9 percent were Hispanic American. So one of the major issues here was given the fact that without any consideration of race at all, they could get above 20% of black and Latino students, that is, above 20% of underrepresented minority students, had they already obtained the quote-unquote critical mass necessary to give them the educational benefits of diversity without considering race for any of the other admissions uh, spots. And, and I do think that that's one of the significant things here is the court is saying, no, they hadn't, that this is really a judgment that's to be made by the academics. Uh, it's within their expertise to define for themselves how much diversity they need uh, in their student bodies. An important aspect of this decision, I think, underscoring what Kevin said, is that um, the court has uh, left in place the sort of traditional deference that it, is, that it has given to the academic judgment of college and university administrators and faculties. Three years ago in this earlier Fisher decision, there was some question about that. The court seemed a little more skeptical of the idea of deferring to academics to make these decisions. This decision, I think, mm -hmm. much more clearly underscores the historic deference that the court has said is owed to the professional judgments of faculty and administrators on educational matters, including admissions. So I, want to I, I agree with Steve you, there's much in this decision that says um, the status quo is preserved. Uh, for opponents of affirmative action, they're going to, and they have already, pointed to some parts of the opinion that that can, you know, we have to say maybe, maybe not, that the, the court emphasizes that this is a unique case, uh, the Texas plan is, is different from other plans of affirmative action. Uh, this did take people by surprise because Justice Kennedy has never been in, in the uh, support, voted for an affirmative action uh, policy, he's always been opposing them. So. Uh, and we, of course, we have a seat to be filled. So, for the time being, the the court um, preserved the, the affirmative action policies that are, that are being used. But um, there are some warning signs that um, we'll have to see what happens in the next few years. So, Kevin, maybe you can answer this. But in, in addition to this top ten percent, how was it being applied in terms of accepting minorities? And then I, I would like you, David, if you can, to explain how that figures into IU's decisions too. Well, seventy-five percent of the students were coming from the top ten percent plan, which effectively for UT really meant that you had to be in the top seven or eight percent of your high school class. If you were there, you'd get automatic admission. So. We're talking about the other 25% that were being admitted. And there was a holistic review. They, they looked at a number of different factors, obviously work experience, letters of recommendation, essays that the kids uh, filed. But they also looked at a number of social factors, including were you from a single parent family? Uh, what was your SAT score in comparison to the SAT scores of your particular school? So, and and. Race was another one of those factors. Um, so they were able to get more black and Latinos admitted considering race than they were getting before they adopted this policy in 2004 that did not consider race. And there was, in fact, one argument that was made by the Grutter plaintiffs where they said, look, the impact of this is so minor um, that that means it fails the, the, the narrow tailoring aspect because it doesn't have a significant impact. And, and Kennedy said, well, you know, come on, that's the whole point of narrow tailoring is that it shouldn't have a major impact and you can't criticize it because it didn't have a substantial impact. But in fact, it did. It, it did improve without question the number of black and Latino kids who were being admitted uh, when race was considered than what you had before. So. Uh, and one important point about this 10% plan is the court says before you consider race, 
make sure there are not there are not alternative admission policies that don't consider race that get you the diversity that you're looking for and texas said look we did try this alternative we tried this top ten percent plan and the theory is that if you take the top students from every school and you have high schools that have a heavy minority enrollment which is true in a lot of parts of texas and in the inner city of houston and san antonio and and other dallas um, you'll get diversity that way. So Texas could say, look, we tried alternatives, and, and it helped, but not enough. Um, so the question is, will the, will the court going forward say to other universities, well, have you tried uh, other alternatives, or will they say, well, we know from the Texas experience that these alternatives aren't sufficient? I'm trying to figure out how all this works in practice in terms of do you get bonus points if you're a minority? Or, David, can you can you walk us through how it's done at IU? Yeah, well, that's a very important one because if you go back to the Michigan cases that Steve mentioned, they upheld the law school policy and struck down the undergraduate admissions policies because the undergraduate policy was to give, you know, there was – you were a scale of, say, 150 points, and most of that was grades and, and SAT, but you might get like 20 points if you were a member of an underrepresented minority. You might get 10 points for musical ability. Five, well, you probably get 20 points for being an athlete, five points for artistic ability, and so on. And what troubled them was the, the points you got for being a member of an underrepresented uh, racial minority was determinative. Those 20 points made the difference, tipped the balance for so many students. And the court said, it can't be like that. can't have these points like that that really make, you know, especially when you give 20 points for, you know, the racial diversity, but only 5 or 10 points for um, artistic skills. What, what they do here in these other, uh, Texas and, and Harvard and Indiana, a lot of places, is to say, we're going to look at a lot of different factors and we're going to, you know, the, we're going to, that's irrelevant. And we're trying to get a diverse student body. So if, if you bring different diversity to the table, that will be important. But, but not with a fixed number of points, not in a, as Steve said, not in a mechanical way, but in a holistic way where we look and, and, and you know, try to find, make sure that we have all the different kinds of diversity represented. David Johnson, do you want to jump in here and tell us how, how this works in practice at IU? Sure, um, and I'm happy, happy to be here today, and I just wanted to comment, kind of take a step back a little bit and talk a little bit about IU Bloomington and our commitment uh, to our enrollment goals of quality, full diversity, and access. Um, and, and we're pleased to be able to continue our current admissions practices um, with race as just one of many factors um, among several factors that we consider in our holistic admissions process. Um, and as the other David was just kind of pointing out, we we don't use any point system that is uh, illegal. And um, so we look at each applicant individually in a holistic uh, approach in our admissions process. And some of the factors that we consider for admissions are the strengths and weaknesses of an applicant, their academic preparation, their achievements, their abilities, their motivation, their maturity. Um, and uh, we, we look at their essays that they provide to us. We require essays from the students and um, we look at recommendation letters that would uh, come in. So we look at this, each individual student in a very holistic way. Does the university have goals, like diversity goals in place? Is that something that's common? Uh, what is common is to uh, the point that I think Kevin Brown was talking about earlier, and that is the critical mass um, and appropriateness for the institution. But in terms of quotas, which are also illegal, um, we do not have set numbers um, that we are looking to grow the quality of our class, grow the diversity of our class, um, and and make sure that we keep IU affordable, particularly for Indiana residents. What uh, I, I think some of the caution you're hearing David express is, is required by the court's decision. So uh, public universities are bound by the Constitution, and what the court has said for decades is that any consideration of race, any mindfulness of race by government officials in any kind of decision-making comes with a heavy 
a, a presumption of unconstitutionality uh, under the 14th Amendment, under the Equal Protection Clause. So if race is to be considered in some way consciously by a government decision maker like an admissions officer, um, it, it has to be done in a way that is not mechanical, that doesn't um, is not over-inclusive, does not uh, uh, end up rewarding students who might not need it, that, that as, as long as this consideration is holistic, without specific quotas, without specific numbers, it's okay. But, but the sort of caution you're hearing, I think, is based on the doctrine of this court, uh, a very conservative court on racial matters in recent decades, that um, any consideration of race must be done uh, delicately, carefully, in a nuanced way, because there is such a heavy constitutional presumption against it. Yeah, and, and the quota, it, the concern about quotas goes back to the original affirmative action decision, which was the Bakke case in the early 70s, when a medical school in California, state medical school, decided to increase it, wanted to have more minority students, increased its class by 25 students, and said we're going to reserve those 25 new slots for minority applicants, and the court said you can't do that. You can't have these rigid quotas. Every applicant has to be able to compete for every admission slot. You can't, you know, have segregated class sections. Everybody, again, has to have a chance to compete. And then, but you can do that in the way that the court acknowledged now for University of Texas in this holistic way. Everybody is competing in the, on the base of a wide range of characteristics. Right, but, but let me say, the tensions involved in this notion that you need a critical mass of underrepresented minority students in order to get the benefits of diversity, and that seems to suggest some numbers. Uh, the concept of critical mass relates to having enough minorities in there so that they feel like they can be individuals. They don't feel racially isolated. They don't feel like they're speaking uh, for the race. And I'll give you an example. Um, I went to a law school where there were 200 students uh, in my first year class, but there were three African Americans. That was not a critical mass. So we knew when we were together that when we spoke, we were speaking for all blacks. Uh, we were racially isolated. We understood that from the beginning. We sat in class together. We studied together. We ate together. Uh, so critical mass means you got to have enough that your minority students don't feel that way. That seems to imply a certain number or a certain percentage, but you can't really state a percentage or a number because then you have a quota. Mm -hmm. And what I could just speak to if, uh, is the facts on the ground about what we do represent in our current class that came in this fall. And, and so out of um, our uh, class of 7,875 freshmen at IU, um, we had 1,185 underrepresented students enrolled in that class. It was the largest number of underrepresented students we've ever had at IU. It made up 17 percent of um, of the class, um, and then you can get into well, is that a reaching critical mass or or uh, close to it, not quite, um, and all of that. But I think um, Professor Brown's points are very very appropriate in that regard, um, and so we. Um, work to uh, support the institution's educational um, uh, goals in terms of the educational benefits of a diverse learning environment. Um, and it's very clear that uh, a diverse learning environment uh, provides uh, quality education for all involved, uh, not just the underrepresented students or majority students. And let me just add one more point about diversity. While this is about uh, racial and ethnic diversity we're talking about here, we undercut this with socioeconomic diversity. Um, we're talking about geographic diversity. We're talking about gender diversity, male-female diversity, um, and certainly um, uh, sexual orientation um, diversity as well. And so we, we look at all of these as we think about um, uh, admissions at IU. 812-855-0811. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about affirmative action and the Supreme Court's decision yesterday involving the University of Texas case. We do have Stan on the line from Bloomington. He's been waiting here for a couple minutes, so let's go to him. Stan, go ahead. Uh, thank you. I'm curious to know whether uh, further study of this issue might result in a scrutiny of private schools uh, and a push to require them 
to observe some of the same procedures in accepting their students. They, they, they are. Um, private schools are governed by Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and the Supreme Court has interpreted for purposes of discrimination the test under the Equal uh, Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to be the same as Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act. So if you have a private school that receives federal funds and if their students receive um, student loans, federal student loans, they're receiving federal funds, they would be governed by basically the same rules that, that are governing public universities. That's interesting. So they, they can't pick and choose? Well, no university has to have affirmative action. You don't have to say we're going to consider race and ethnicity. This is being done by colleges and universities who feel like considering race and, and, and ethnicity improves their educational um, uh, environment. The other thing to note is that when you're talking about affirmative action, you're only talking about it applying to selective colleges and universities. Uh, if you have colleges and universities who are going to admit virtually all students who apply or who have one criteria, let's say that criteria is a 3.0 GPA, if you have it from high school, you get admitted, otherwise you don't. Those schools don't have affirmative action because they're not making judgments about which students to admit and which students not to admit. So not all colleges and universities are going to use affirmative action. It's really just the quote-unquote selective ones. Thanks for the call, Stan. I wonder how this applies to public schools and the and the alternative to public funded schools where taxpayer money is going to the private school student. Are you thinking about K through twelve education? Yes. Oh well, um, well this opinion itself only applies to higher education. Uh, K through twelve would be dealt actually dealt with similarly, but that would be a whole different conversation. Okay, thank you, Stan, for for the for the call. Um, it, I think one thing we found surprising is that not even all states observe affirmative. Allow it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's eight states have have banned it, and I'm curious to know: is there evidence that 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 actually has an impact on the makeup of the student body? Oh well, it certainly has an impact on the yeah. makeup of the student body. You have less diversity, uh, less racial and ethnic diversity in those schools. Um, yeah. There have been some studies that have even shown that the minority students in those schools feel more racially isolated uh, than the students who are in schools that use affirmative action. And, and I yeah. think this goes back to the idea that this decision simply fits into a larger pattern of a cultural conflict over the issue of affirmative action. The, the states like Michigan and California and several others have actually had voter initiatives where the issue was put to voters and voters decided uh, race should not be used in, in the context of, of, of educational decision making or, or employment decision making. Um, this case, this Fisher case, came to the court because it was driven by activists who are opposed to affirmative action. I think one reason Justice Alito's dissent is so detailed and so bitter is because uh, the most conservative justices on the court right now are just absolutely allergic to any form of affirmative action and think it needs to be stamped out. And they're frustrated that Justice Kennedy, whose views tend to be more nuanced, he's not supported affirmative action in the past, but he's also not an ideologue on the issue. He has a much more nuanced conception of the relationship between race and the law, I think, than some of the conservative justices do. And so those justices are frustrated with Justice Kennedy that his, he's too squishy, that he's found a way to sort of compromise and keep affirmative action alive. Well, well let, let me do say this about Kennedy, though. Kennedy writes a 2007 case in a K-12 through case, uh, mm -hmm. Parents Involved, where he does, in fact, embrace affirmative action at the K through 12 level, mm -hmm. showing we've done this uh, for colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. I, we do actually need to take a short break. I want to remind our listeners that this is Noon Edition on WFIU, and we want to hear your questions and comments for our guests. You can call at 812-855-0811. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition or join our live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court decision ruled in favor of the University of Texas rejecting a challenge against the school's affirmative action program. And today we're talking to local experts about the case. We have Steve Sanders and Kevin Brown from the Maurer School of Law. David Johnson, he's the Vice Provost for Enrollment Management at Indiana University. We also have David Orntlicker. He's, the prof- he's a professor of law at the McKinney School of Law. You can join the conversation, 812 one, one. David Johnson, I want you to kind of jump in here and weigh in. Why is it so important to take this holistic approach and consider this as one of many factors? And why is diversity so important to bring these people together? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I alluded to the opportunity of educational benefits, and our legal scholars can can address that as well. Um, it's well documented and it's clear. But um, I, I want to go back to our our goals a bit, and that's the quali- academic quality. Students, you know, have strong academic records, but full diversity and access. And I always talk with my staff and, and other folks about the uh, complementary nature of those goals, but yet also competing goals. And um, you could have um, certain quality if you didn't admit uh, certain um, students. Uh, you could have uh, certain diversity if you didn't admit certain students. And you could have um, uh, little financial laid on the table if you admitted only everybody who was full pay. And so you have to balance all of that in, uh, at a large public institution and to try to serve the population of the state and certainly the country and the world. We are a global institution and so we have to factor in all of those aspects. And so as you look at a class and yes, you can say, well, there are students who, who looking at their academic record, they're clearly admissible. They have strong academics. They uh, demonstrate maturity, all the things that I talked about earlier. Um, yet then there's uh, students who uh, you would clearly deny to Indiana University Bloomington because of their um, academic record and the lack of, um, uh, of academic performance on their part. And so it's those students in the middle that you might be looking at to say, um, what do they bring to the table? Which do those, what do those students all on an individual basis? We have different staff in our office reviewing different applications. Uh, we then bring it, um, questions that they have to a review team. And so our team really looks at these files um, individually and what can these students bring to the process. Um, David, I always imagine uh, people who do the work that you and your colleagues do as sort of like assembling a mosaic or, or, or even a, a mandala. Uh, uh, every year you're looking for balance, you're looking for diversity. If you can't take race into account because race is such an important part of many people's experiences, um, at the same time you're looking at artistic and academic and leadership and athletic ability, then, then you're not going to be able to have that balance that you're looking for. Well, it, 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 I think um, you know a mosaic is a nice approach, um, and we and we try to do all of that within the legal uh, frameworks. Is is what I, we are challenged with in terms of the admissions process, withstanding the strict scrutiny, um, educational benefits of student diversity, um, with the given some judicial deference that we have, um, and then the use of race uh, as narrowly tailored. So we we look at all of that. 
um, and review each individual file uh, to assess whether or not um, they would contribute to our campus and whether they would be successful here. Um, have they shown the potential in high school uh, to be successful? And that's, that's our approach. And, and, and I'd like to jump in as a faculty member now. Admittedly, I'm not, I don't teach undergrads, but Steve and I teach in, in the law school. Uh, and I teach traditional legal courses towards criminal law, but I also teach some of our courses that deal with race. There's absolutely no question in my mind that the courses that are the better courses are the ones that have a diverse group of students who are looking at the same issue from different points of view. Uh, the discussions are more lively, more entertaining, and far more knowledgeable because I see students who now have to think about ways of looking at a particular problem that they've never even considered before simply because someone with a diverse background saw it in a way that they didn't see at all. And this idea that uh, everyone's educational achievement and learning outcomes generally are improved when learning takes place in a diverse educational environment has been validated by research. I mean, back in 2003, when the university, when the uh, Supreme Court decided these two landmark cases that gave us the regime we have today, this was tested at trial. There was testimony by faculty. There were expert witnesses. There have been reams of data, social science, educational, psychological data that show um, that uh, uh, learning outcomes are improved in a diverse educational environment. And I'll yeah, just add just one. Like to add that diversity is, is a, obviously a very critical aspect of the court's decision, and for good reasons, as, uh, as David, Kevin, and Steve have said. Uh, it's also we don't want to lose track in the Gruder opinion, the court's point that it's also about making sure everybody, that we are land of opportunity for everybody, given the role of leading academic institutions play and people's future, giving them, an, you know, the, that's a stepping stone to so many career opportunities, and that we want to make sure, as the court said, that, quote, effective participation by members of all racial and ethnic groups in the civic life of our nation is essential if the dream of one nation is to be realized. So, so that's another important part about this, that, you know, under, if you don't have affirmative action, it means that um, the elite institutions that really, um, you know, I, I think one of the things they pointed out in the Gruder case was how many of the members of Congress come from um, elite law. This was, they were talking about the law schools in that case, um, but it's true about undergraduate institutions as well. And, and so that's another part of, of this, this puzzle here. It, the opportunity that diversity in the classroom presents is, uh, you know, varied. But one that I wanted to speak to is the ability to uh, enable students to better understand persons of, of different backgrounds, different races, because you're going to move out of the classroom and you're going to be in the world of work. We have to live in a global society and you need to be able to interact uh, with a variety of people. And so that's why we embrace our international students. We embrace our underrepresented minorities. We embrace uh, students of all differences. And so, you know, the, I was just in a meeting this morning where someone was discussing the benefits of of a mix in a classroom of male-female, and there's been lots of research on that as well. There's also benefits of having different uh, races in the classroom because you're going to move out of that classroom someday. 812-855-0811 today talking about affirmative action on Noon Edition. One thing just from our conversation, it seems to be that these policies are different at every university. So I'm wondering, with this, are we going to see that you know, there are going to be more challenges because people are going to see that there are all these differences. And, poss and Kennedy seemed to warn that, you know, they, they all need to be constantly reevaluated. Yeah, I think this will lead to more litigation, especially when Kennedy says, uses the term sui generis, this is a unique case given the Texas plan, and, and that will be an important question going forward. How much of this is a reaffirmation of Grutter generally, or how much of it is the court kind of punting on the broader question and, and disposing of the Texas and, and taking advantage of the fact that Texas is a very specific kind of situation. Um, but one of the things that ties back to Steve's point about, and your question about, a lot of states have banned affirmative action, so they can't do this. What do they do? And, and, and I think 
I hope one of the lessons is that there are a lot of virtues of this top 10 approach is kind of a, you know, Texas did it for 75% of the class. Texas A&M does it for 100% of the class, as does the University of Houston. And there are a lot of nice benefits in terms of changing people's ways of, of where they live. And if, if we're looking at diversity more generally, um, Justice Kennedy criticizes the top 10 plan that is, you know, you get in automatically if you're in the top 10% of your high school class because it encourages parents to keep their children in low-performing schools rather than moving them to the elite schools. But in fact, that's a very good incentive because a real problem we have with our, you know, we have a lot of economic segregation in our country where wealthy people move, create their their exclusive enclaves with their high-performing schools and 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 leaving, uh, you know, less advantaged neighborhoods with higher levels of poverty and weaker schools. And if, if a top class rank policy drives wealthier parents to put their kids in lower performing schools and in less exclusive neighborhoods, that's good if we can return to days when we have greater economic integration because we know that kids' chances of moving up the economic ladder are much greater if they live in an economically integrated neighborhood, that it's much more important what the economics of their neighborhood is than the economics of their house. Mm-hmm. Steve, you had something to add? Uh, well, just in terms of the the judicial politics of this issue, I think if Secretary Clinton is elected president and we have a Democratic uh, appointee to the court, probably affirmative action is going to, as it stands now, is going to continue to be safe, and the, the, the organized opponents of affirmative action will probably give up the fight, the legal fight for now, and focus on passing more referenda you know, with voters banning affirmative action in their states. But they'll give up on the Supreme Court for now unless there are further changes in the court's personnel if Donald Trump is elected and we have a more conservative justice and that alters the, bal- the current balance, then I think one way or the other you will find – someone will find a way to get another one of these challenges from some other state in front of the court and want – one more bite at the apple of driving a stake through the heart of affirmative action, which is the goal of of conservative legal activists in this country. Yeah, and, and that's what I, I wanted to address the, the future of this from a legal standpoint. Because I think Steve is exactly right. If, if we get Clinton uh, elected, we're going to end up with a much more liberal court than, frankly, we've had since the early 1970s. But, but let's assume Trump gets elected and puts one of the people that, that he's mentioned on the court who's most likely going to be against affirmative action, certainly in a broad sense, that then means Kennedy's opinion becomes that much more important. And, and I want to go back to what Steve pointed to when he first talked about uh, Kennedy's opinion. And what really is so striking here is the deference that Kennedy pays to the academic institution. It's you tell us why you are doing this, and then you show us how your methods align up with why you are doing this, and and, and we're gonna we're gonna give some credence to to, to your judgment. Um, so I, I think what I take away from here, which might be a little different than David, is I take away from here a real sense of of Kennedy saying to colleges and universities, look. You have flexibility in this area. Just just show us the rationale. Show us your thought processes. Show us how the methods you put in place are going to advance your reasons for having this diversity. And, and then we're likely to say, okay. I'm curious to, to hear what you think if, if you think we're always going to need affirmative action policies. Do you think somewhere down the line it just it won't be necessary or is this just the reality of it? I, I'll just give a comment from the um, layman's term with the attorneys in the room, but uh, you know it was commented in the case um, uh, yesterday that having changing demographics um, might undermine the need for uh, racial uh, conscious uh, race conscious um, admissions policy and so you know it gives pause for thought, but I I hearken back to Sandra Day O'Connor's comments in 2003. You know she said maybe in 25 years we may not need it, but we're not in 25 years yeah. yet. And so I, I'll well, well, defer to I'd, Kevin. I'd, I'd probably say, look, you, keep in mind, this is Fisher versus Texas. So almost half of the high school graduates in Texas are black and Latino. 
and we're talking about Texas saying we need to consider race uh, and ethnicity in the admissions process. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that changing demographics is going to eliminate a need to consider race and ethnicity. Um, I think it's, to me, one of the real drivers for why you want to do this is really globalization. Uh, as our kids come more and more into contact with people from other countries, other cultural backgrounds, they really need a totally different set of skills to interact with people who are from fundamentally different backgrounds than them. And and this is where I think diversity is, is absolutely critical because you learn the limitations of your own value system only by talking to someone who has a value system different than yours. Steve, I want to get your thoughts on it. I think it's a great question. Well, I, I, it's important to recognize legally that the court's position is that the purpose of affirmative action right now in its limited constitutional form is not to make up for social disadvantage, is not to assure uh, uh, African-Americans and, and, and Latinos and other racial and ethnic minorities a, a, a certain place. The, 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 the rationale for affirmative action really is focused on the institution's needs, the college or the university needs. And so as long as that's the case, as long as David Johnson and his colleagues are concerned about assembling a class that is diverse in all sorts of ways, that, that just doesn't, you know, arise from algorithm, algorithms, but make sure you have, you know, Latino students who are both liberal and conservative and black students who are both liberal and conservative and athletes and artists and French horn players and all that. Why you know, it, it would seem odd if you're taking all these different characteristics into account, family background, what state you're from, why would we factor out one characteristic that is undeniably important to a person's self-concept and, and their life experience, and that is race. So again, to the extent that it is one factor in putting together a carefully selected group of people, uh, I, I don't see why you'd ever want to exclude it, e even if... Uh, academic achievement and, and opportunities for minority students increased. Steve, if I could just quickly add to that, it, and it is um, while we're charged with doing this work and enrollment management in the Office of Admissions, um, it is at the behest of the Bloomington uh, Faculty Council, of which you are a member, and um, the Bloomington Undergraduate Admissions Policy set forth uh, by the BFC, which can be found online for any of the listeners to, to read. Um, and so we follow that guidance uh, from the BFC and the, the, the policy set forth there. Um, so it's, it's more than David Johnson and, and um, a group of people. But in terms of uh, how 25 years, 50 years, how long do we need this, there's a certain amount of tension here because and in an ideal world, we wouldn't have that, you know, different students wouldn't face disadvantages that would prevent them from doing as well as other students on their academic measures, whether it's grades, SAT, or, or other measures of accomplishment. And, and, you know, we wouldn't need to take steps to make sure we represent all groups. But as Steve says, the court has made clear that you can't, use affirmative action to make up for the socioeconomic disadvantages. So we're sort of dealing with treating symptoms rather than causes. And until we deal with the causes more effectively, and that's what's driving our presidential race, the economic inequality that's such a big problem in our country, and, and then the overlay of persistent racial discrimination. Um, so affirmative action can indirectly get at root causes, but it's much more addressing the symptoms. And as long as you're addressing symptoms more than causes, you're, you're, the need is going to persist for a long time. Well, let, let me also say, though, it's not like the United States is unique. Um, we find affirmative action programs or quotas or reservation programs all over the world. Uh, India has them, Brazil has them, uh, South Africa has them. It's, this is something that's fairly common where a lot of countries have found a need to try to be more inclusive in the people that they're admitting into their elite higher education institutions or, or in the jobs. I do want to go to the phones here. We have Ben on the line from Bloomington, and Ben has a question about minorities. Go ahead, Ben. Hi, I was just going to comment that uh, it seems as though 
uh, and I'd like to thank professors um, uh, Sanders and Brown, who uh, have uh, taken classes from them. <laughs> and uh, it just seems that no one is addressing the fact that you're commenting on out of the 7,000 undergrads that are coming in, they're disadvantaged. That could be a very broad statement, and it seems that we're getting away from whether or not someone's actually black or Hispanic or and can be identified as that from a distance, so to speak. Oh, wow. oh well, that's certainly one of the criticisms of Justice Alito's dissent, dissent that, um, you know, they Texas, use, if this is what you're asking, Texas has you know, some very broad categories that really doesn't reflect the nuances. And another criticism is, you know, is affirmative action favoring disadvantaged blacks as opposed to advantaged blacks? And shouldn't it be favoring the focus be on people who are, you know, not really given fair opportunity to, 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 to live up to, you know, to meet their potential? And it is very complicated, and um, I, I suppose part of the problem is there's no way to do this in a, an ideal way. You're always going to have to make some compromises, and, and you've you got to do the best you can with, with what you have. If, if the caller's point, I'm not quite sure I understood it, but if the caller's point was that there are other forms of disadvantage other than race and ethnicity that universities need to take into account, there, there's nothing uh, in, from the current approach that precludes that. Once again, um, under the court's doctrine, the consideration of race or ethnicity is very limited. It's one factor among many. It gets no special weight. And so David Johnson may want to add here too, but, but other forms of economic disadvantage, family disadvantage, first-generation college students, that, that is taken into consideration, will continue to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I'll add from an enrollment perspective, and this steps out a little bit broader than just the admissions point, um, but once a student is admitted, um, if they are a 21st century scholar in the state of Indiana, then we provide the 21st century scholar covenant uh, to support them to uh, full cost. And that is uh, majority students and underrepresented students. In fact, it's more majority students. We have a lot of uh, low-income majority students in the state of Indiana. And so there's a lot of 21st century scholars uh, in that regard. Our Pell Promise program, if you are a Pell-eligible student, a low-income student, another uh, variable as the caller is talking about, um, we also offer the Pell Promise if you uh, receive the Pell Grant, you're not a 21st century scholar, um, that you're a resident, uh, we'll uh, get you to tuition, uh, we'll make up the difference with the Pell Promise. And so um, there are socioeconomic variables uh, that we uh, consider throughout the enrollment process. It, it may be beyond the admissions point, um, but that's to support the enrollment of the student and to support the success of the student while they're here, regardless of their race. Well, let, let, let me, though, take a point which, which I've actually written about. So I've written a book called Because of Our Success, the changing racial and ethnic ancestry of blacks on affirmative action. And what we are seeing is a replacement of your sort of traditional African-American as the black who benefits to arm affirmative action to more and more first and second generation black immigrants or, or black multiracials, ones who ne don't necessarily have the same connection to America's history of race discrimination that the quote-unquote traditional African-Americans would have. And, and, of course, David Johnson and I have talked about this, but you're actually finding in, in many of our most elite colleges and universities that there are very few what the one would call traditional African-Americans who are benefiting from the program. Uh, for example, Yale in 2014 54% of the blacks admitted to Yale College were actually multiracials. And when you add in the first and second generation black immigrants, you're probably talking about less than 10% of the blacks being your traditional African Americans. But, but this is a change that's pretty much happening nationwide. Thank you for the call. You're talking about underrepresented versus just we need to actually be more narrowly tailored toward looking at actually doing what the purpose of the program was. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Um, we only have about four minutes left here on the program, 812-855-0811, if you want to call in with your question or comment. I think it was a Washington Post article I was reading that had some comments from late Justice Scalia 
and he had said that won't he sort of raised the question that won't qualified applicants win admission without special consideration. Um, I'll throw that out to you, David, just for your reaction. I'm sorry, Sarah, could you... Uh, Justice Scalia had said, raised the question of won't qualified applicants win admission without special consideration, basically raising the question of whether this was necessary. Well, I think it, this goes back to the why do you have affirmative action, and it goes back to the point of providing opportunity for people. It's not, uh, I think the president of the U.S. was saying this yesterday, it's not about uh, ensuring success of people. It is providing opportunity and access to opportunity for people, and um, you have to be uh, qualified, and you have to show that you have the potential um, to succeed at IU Bloomington, um, absolutely, or we wouldn't admit you because we don't want you to be here and not be successful. Yet um, we have found that we need to look more holistically and more broadly beyond just grades and test scores, and that's what we absolutely do. Yeah, that's I- a good point that, you know, we're, we're talking about a pool of people who all are qualified, and, and now when you start to make fine distinctions, well, a few more points on a on an SAT, how much does that tell you, as opposed to now, instead of focusing and refining this one characteristic or two characteristics, we start looking at a broader range that bring different values to the table. That's the whole point of diversity, that we don't think students are measured entirely by their grades or their achievement test scores. And, and again, uh, as, as you get up, the, when you go from 1,200 to 1,210 or 1,215, how much does that really tell you once you know this is a qualified student? Okay, David, we're going to have to end there, unfortunately, because we are all out of time. I want to thank our guests, Steve Sanders, Kevin Brown, David Johnson, and David Orntlicker. Thanks for joining us today. For our producer, Drew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkast, and co-host Barbara Brozier, thank you. I'm Sarah Whitmire, and this is Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, Fiber Internet, HD, and Digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.